0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well... Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Long before the rise of the internet troll, malicious letters written by anonymous authors were causing untold grief to those who received them and tugging at the seams of social cohesion in small communities. Such letters are the subject of Emily Cocaine's latest book, Penning Poison. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizen, Emily reveals what the rise in these spiteful missives can tell us about social change in the 19th and 20th centuries.
1: Hi, Emily. Thank you for joining us today. Now, you've written a book on the history of anonymous letters called Penning Poison. And as luck would have it, you've also written a feature on that very topic for the October issue of BBC History magazine. Now, just to give our listeners a a bit of an overview of what exactly we're talking about here, what kind of missives does your book cover and what time period are we talking about here?
2: Hi, Spencer. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so the types of letters are those who aren't uh, aren't signed with the name of the writer, essentially. So anonymous letters, they could be pseudonymous, so they could be signed by a friend or a well-wisher or something like that. Or they might just not be signed at all. Or they could even be signed just with initials that aren't clear who the author is. And they're written for various reasons. They're they're written in in handwriting, in pencil, in pen, in crayon. Uh, Sometimes later on they were they were made out of cut-out letters, but I don't look at those so much because those are more ransom notes. So those are sort of where people really do make an effort to hide who was writing. Uh, So any letter that was written that you don't know who wrote it, or you can't be sure who wrote it. I look at letters from around about 1760 to around about 1939, with a focus very much more, though, in the Victorian Edwardian up to 1939, because the 1930s, it really did. By then, there were lots of these letters circulating.
1: Just as modern internet trolls rely on the existence of the World Wide Web, to send malicious messages. So it seems the authors of anonymous letters in the past relied on an earlier great technological leap forward, that technological leap forward being the introduction of the prepaid penny post. So I was wondering, can you explain to us what exactly was the prepaid penny post? And would it be fair to say that it triggered a surge in anonymous letter writing?
2: So between about 1840 and 1850, the technology of being able to secrete letters and certainly after 1850 with pillar boxes just becomes much easier because you can just stamp something and there's no administrative trail to connect you to that letter. Now, whether that increased letter writing I don't know, because we have no idea how many anonymous letters were written, because most people destroyed them, because often they tap into those sort of secrets we're trying to hide. So there's so many unknowns about letter writing. All we have is the letters that survive, and they're probably a weird sample of letters. Kept for some reason because they were part of a huge campaign, maybe, or because people were worried that they were going to get another one. Now I think that perhaps something like the Education Act of 1870 had more to do with the increase in letter writing that we get through the later part of the 19th century and into the 20th century, because more people are literate. So I think it's to do with literacy. But it just is easier to to send an anonymous letter if you're not going to slip it under... A door or in a hedge or drop it in a garden. If you're going to use the postal system, then obviously after after the mid-19th century, that gets way, way easier. Okay, so let's look at
1: some of these letters in a bit more detail. You I know, mean, I, I guess if you want an example of just how personal anonymous letters could be, and I, also how much Emotional damage they could potentially inflict on the recipient. I mean, I was thinking a good place to start might be a letter written to a recently bereaved mother, Mary Cocaine, in 1894. Can you tell us a little bit more about this case, please?
2: Yeah, this one is a fascinating case. It's from 1894. And so, Mary Cocaine, she's about to bury her son, Morton. Morton was the assistant curate at Carshalton church and so she gets this letter that basically says make sure he's dead first before you bury him because the last curate we we're not sure whether he was that's the sort of basic line behind it and I sort of thought why would you send that to a grieving mother what a thing to receive. So in that case, so to talk you through the sort of methodological process, her husband, George, wrote The Complete Peerage and I knew he had diaries. So I thought, I wonder if he says in his diary, oh, my wife got this horrible letter. But of course, diaries in 1894 are usually just, I did that and I met him and the weather was like this and I walked this far. So they're not really emotional descriptions. So there was that was a bit of a dead end, didn't get there. So I spent a long time sort of digging around in the Cocaine family history. It's, I'm, I'm a Cocaine too, but they're very different. They're a much elevated uh, branch of the family with a slightly different spelling. And so found out that there were all sorts of secrets in their past. And uh, There was a curate who could be the curate mentioned in the letter. So the other curate. It sort of makes you think, well, who could that be? So that's what I was interested in that letter. And so found out that one of the relatives of her husband had been accused of various nefarious things in the 1870s. So perhaps the memory goes back that far. But that's just a guess. I wasn't quite sure. And so actually, quite interestingly, there's a big story in the book about Annie Tugwell. who wrote letters before 1910 and possibly with the involvement of some members of her family as well. Now, but this letter... Uh, sent to Mary Cocaine in 1894, that letter was sent from Sutton, which is where Annie Tugwell was living at the time. So I've always had this suspicion, are the Tugwells involved? Because they were really interested in church affairs, and this is a church-related letter. Haven't ever been able to fix that in any way, but that's a sort of bubbling on suspicion behind these. You know when you sort of get multiple cases of crimes and often it turns out to be one person committing all of them I wondered if that might be the case here. So this was a letter. I couldn't work out who wrote it, couldn't be certain who wrote it, but I thought it was probably something to do with local gossip. So somebody in the local community saying these cocaine's they're a bit up themselves. They They need bringing down a peg or two. And so we're going to send this pretty thoughtless letter to somebody who's grieving. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's quite a vicious thing to do. Did you get any evidence or any indication from your research what kind of impacts had on the recipient?
2: Yeah, various, various impacts. So I wonder whether maybe some of the impacts, it depends on what emotional state the receiver is at the time as well, or whether they do have some secrets that they're trying to hide that they don't want to expose. So the whole range of human emotions come out here. So anger, if you get a letter, confusion, puzzling. Who might this be from? Who dislikes be enough to do this? In some cases, it can cause serious upset. There are cases that are connected to miscarriage. There are several cases in, the, in around about 1938 connected to the suicide of the receiver and also to people who were accused of writing letters. That there were suicides connected there and then you get right at the other end so quite a lot of people got a lot of these letters clergymen lawyers coroners uh, judges people like that got a lot of them so they became quite immune to responding in this emotional way and also those letters would be much more about their work than their personal life and they would arrive at work they wouldn't arrive at their homes and so I finished the book with an example of a clergyman who got a letter because the, the letter writer thought he'd given a bad sermon and he sat at his breakfast table and turned it into beautiful poetry, which I sort of say that's a lesson for us all. If you respond too emotionally to the letters, then the letter writers won, haven't they? So if you destroy it, bin it, forget about it, then that's perhaps a, um, a more a more sensible, safeguarding approach to receiving a letter like this. Another thing is sort
1: of related to that point. One thing I noticed when reading your book was that these incidents of anonymous letter writing are often played out in quite small communities involving neighbours who might have to look one another in the right of each other's eyes, you know, the day after the letter has been received. What do these letters do to social cohesion in these places?
2: They really dug into it in a horrible way, caused terrible ripples in some local communities. Everybody doubting everybody else. uh, What other secrets are going to come out? Why is there a person in the community? I mean, remember some of these letters, they might have obscenity in, or they might have death threats in them. So people would would take the threats seriously. Now, I think often the death threat letters... They're a cry for help rather than a serious thing. But if you're in the midst of that, if you're in a community going through that, then it causes terrible, terrible responses. So there was a play written at the time in 1937 by Llewellyn called Poison Pen that explores these ideas, what it does to people in a community. The person who's first accused of writing them commits suicide and it turns out to be the least likely person, the most respectable woman who writes them. And so, what I think it does is it makes people question respectability, roughness, who's most likely. But do you know the most interesting thing that I've found about the communities? So, in cases where the first person who was accused actually turned out not to be the writer, who was generally seen as a rougher sort of person to the more respectable person who turned out to be the actual writer, well, The actual writer was usually accepted back into the community and seen and sort of forgiven. And the person who was originally first accused wrongly and often went to prison for these cases was often hounded out of the community. Can we explore that
1: in a little bit more detail, actually, because I wanted to talk to you about the case involving two neighbours Rose Gooding and Edith Swann in the seaside resort of Littlehampton, I believe, in the 1920s. And I think this is a pretty good example of what you were just outlining now.
2: So what happened in this case is uh, letters are circulating, and Edith Swann takes these letters to the local police and says, "It's my neighbor." Who's writing, I'm pretty sure it's my neighbour. And the local police think, well, Edith Swan is slightly elevated s- status-wise. She's seen as she's seen as pretty respectable. Whereas Rose Gooding is seen as a like fairly lively, fun sort of woman who's got an unusual family setup. I'm gonna leave it at that. So she's got a strange family setup. Now both houses are completely overcrowded, they're tiny. And they live really close to each other, so they are going to know everything that's happening in their houses. They also share a backyard with fishing boxes, with rubbish, with chickens, with gardens, shed sheds, all sorts of strange crisscrossing rites of passage across the garden. And if you've ever lived in a a situation like that, you know that you really start getting quite interested in your neighbours when they're sort of right there in front of you all the time. I think now that, you know, neighbours in that proximity would be able to see what we're putting in the recycling box or what our underwear is like or all sorts of things we might not want other people to know about. What I think was happening was that Edith Swan got a little too obsessed with Rose Gooding. Maybe she was jealous, that's what people thought at the time because Edith Swan was a little bit of a spinster type. She was forced to stay home to look after her parents whereas Rose Gooding had a bit more life and excitement to her. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, Edith Swan convinced the local police that Rose Gooding was probably guilty of this. And Rose was put, was imprisoned twice for writing these letters. You know, nobody checked her handwriting. Nobody checked whether it was like, her handwriting is so different to these letters. And her handwriting is this beautiful, messy, chaotic state and the letters themselves are beautifully penned and very organized and you look at rose gooding's handwriting you think she's not capable of writing in this very systematic way that the letters were written in so that's one thing that the police just never checked they just thought it's much more likely that rose gooding did that so all the evidence went to convict her then edith swan couldn't resist it this sort of something psychologically strange happens in these moments and letters were sent, while Rose was not there. There are very strong alibis. Rose was not in the area. So then they start to suspect. And in fact, it's not the local police that start to suspect Edith Swan. It's the Met police that are brought in. And they start thinking, well, perhaps there's something going on between the neighbours. Perhaps Edith Swan is actually the writer. So this is why they're decoy letters, because Edith Swan wrote, them also to herself and that is to throw the suspicion from herself she never mentions her father in any of those letters unusually for decoy letters she does say that the swan family are a dirty lot and in many of those decoy letters they generally don't talk about things like being dirty or that sort of thing they just mention them then eventually with a sting operation involving a woman police woman hiding in a shed and uh, uh, marked stamps and various things like that. Eventually, Edith Swan was found guilty of writing the letters. She got the same imprisonment that Rose Gooding had got, so not anything extra for perjuring herself, for lying. And then Rose Gooding kind of was forced to leave the Little Hampton area for quite a long time because the suspicion still stuck. If you look at the police records, people are writing in long after... Edith Swan has been convicted, saying, I think, actually, it's probably still Rose Gooding. Because you can see how those initial suspicions stick. And then Edith Swan is still in Littlehampton later on, so seems to be accepted back in the community. Just as in the early case in Redhill in the 1910s, the same thing happened there.
1: I mean, this case throws up so many questions. We didn't- one thing I was going to ask you, did, did this become a bit of a, a media call celebrant? And more generally, how much media attention did these cases garner? You know, nowadays you could imagine the press having an absolute field day with the Little Hampton letters. I mean, Was that the case
2: a century ago? It entirely depends who they thought wrote them and who was at the centre of them. So the press were the press were not very interested in obscene letters written by men. It was just seen as something men just do so it's not newsworthy and so if you look at things like obscene letters then the press is just sort of not paying them very much attention at all until about 1895 when a few women start writing these letters oh and then by you know they're so interested in them why would a woman write like this this is a very strange thing for a woman to write the media is, is implicated in so many ways in these letters. So if you look at so a, a really big case in Staffordshire in 1888 that started in 1888, I think that's partly pushed by the Jack the Ripper response. So there are letters written in Jack the Ripper case. So I think something is happening. It's been put into people's minds that writing an anonymous letter is something that they can do to get into part of the sort of the bigger... Sensational story. The media get really interested in these cases where women are the decoy writers, or where they're writing to elevated members of their community, or so members of the local council, that sort of thing, or where they're writing to the vicars. And there are lots of letters written to vicars because you always know where to send a letter to the vicar, you send it to the vicarage. So poor vicars get loads of these letters. But I would say it's the press starts steering our understanding of what poison pen letters are. And they start suggesting that anonymous letters written by women are a particularly scary thing.
1: Why the obsession? Because you write in your piece that until the 1910s, obscene or threatening letters were primarily associated with men. Then we have this switch and suddenly, you know, this enormous fascination with with women. Why is
2: that? Well, could it be the suffragette movement? That sort of thing, you know. It's this sense at the time that women might be getting a little bit above themselves. So if you look at handwriting of women, women are starting to take men's jobs, aren't they? Around about 1910 or so, the women's handwriting is quite similar to men's. And so that makes people worry. They might start taking other positions. So I think it's to do with male fears of women wanting more position in society, So no one response to female letter writers is to put them in an asylum. So if you put an uppity woman who's acting out of her station and isn't doing the sort of thing a nice woman would do, a nice mother or a nice wife. and, And in fact, the stereotype starts developing about the spinster writer who's bitter and twisted and doesn't have a nice family life. What does it? So if you put that in the newspapers, it gives people this idea that spinsters, they're horrible, aren't they? They're vindictive, nasty people. So it's much better if you get yourself married to a nice man and control your behaviour. So I think it's just to do with control of women at the time.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier that the 1930s saw a real surge in anonymous letter writing. And that leads to my next question. Did you find at all that the nature and the number of these letters were in any way impacted by sort of external factors, like times of national crises, you know, you know there was a threat of war, there was international turbulence or in the midst of, a, I don't know, an economic downturn? Was that in any way reflected in the number of anonymous letters doing the rounds?
2: I have to start with the caveat that we don't really know because we don't know how many letters were actually written at certain times. But I would suggest that similar manifestations to do with all sorts of things, even things like witch hunts, come out when there's social tension. And social tension develops when people are anxious. So anxiety develops around there not being enough money, cost of living. And so that's when you start, humans start having this sort of zero-sum game that they play that... If that person's doing well, it must be because I'm not doing so well. So you start comparing yourself to people like neighbours. Why are they doing okay and I'm not doing okay? And so I think the context for these letters becomes more apparent in those moments. And perhaps people, because they're already anxious, perhaps they respond to receiving a letter in a different way. So if you're feeling quite okay about the way your life's going and you're on top of things you might not get that stress by getting a letter. But if you're feeling like it's one other thing on top of not having enough money and there being a war and something else happening, then perhaps you will respond in a way that that turns a letter that was written, it's a crank letter written by somebody who needs some psychological help perhaps or who's a little bit marginal in society. You might turn that into something scarier. And so turn it into, take it as into a, a legal case. Whether it actually in, it increases letter writing, I don't know. Again, because we just don't know who receives letters, what they do with them. I suspect it probably puts up letter writing a little bit, just because of the sort of that zero-sum nature that humans slip into when they get stressed and anxious
1: is it in any way possible to build a profile of a person who is most likely to pen a malicious anonymous letter is there a character trait most likely to be present in someone prepared to do this
2: right so this is the dangerous thing that people start looking at in the 20th century what's the most likely person to write it and that's why we get this idea of the the nasty bitter spinster who's cross about everything and she's the most likely person who's going to write the letters my short answer having looked at all of these letters is there's no likely person and people are doing it for different reasons and the weird thing that I came to in the end was it's not necessarily a way of people with no power getting power it's actually people with a lot of power abusing their positions of power And so in a lot of cases, I found that it was people who are able to make their handwriting look worse than it is, who are able to look less educated than they are. Now, that itself needs a certain amount of time and energy and intelligence for you to write a letter that looks crafted as though it's not from you. And I don't think that the poor people who were always blamed for these letters, particularly after postcards came in, there was this fear that postcards come in with a half-penny-pent post. It'll be really cheap and anybody can write a letter and then it might be read by your servant or by the postman and it's going to be these poor people. I really didn't get that, that it was the poor people that the Victorians feared writing. I think it's somebody with a fair amount of time somebody with a strange sense of society and grievances and grudges and maybe somebody who feels a little bit powerless at times or that they're not being listened to too much but again, I I temper that with, but I also think that people with a lot of power tend to abuse them as well. So I I ended up saying, I don't think it's about characters. I don't think it's about psychologists. I think it's about society. I think society causes these letters to occur. If we put people in weird positions, if we make intelligent people not have good jobs, so that I connect that to the women in the early 20th century, If we make it that people are feeling anxious all the time, then perhaps they're more likely to, I don't know, lash out in this way. But it's it's way more complicated, I think, than a character type. So there's this idea, you know, that you become a busybody and you want to look out and, and complain about everything. I don't know. Maybe if somebody has a lot of time... But I think we all have it in us to be a little bit strange sometimes. And it's the sort of circumstance that puts some people in that strange position. So I'm going to blame society, not psychology.
1: And one other case I wanted to mention, partly I think because of modern resonances, was of footballers being hanged out of their clubs by abusive letters. you mentioned in your feature the case of Bolton Wanderers player Jack Milson seeking a transfer in 1937 after receiving a series of letters attacking his "quote unquote" type of play. Now, this is something you, I think, you'd expect from the early twenties, but not so much the 1930s. So, why do you think footballers are such perennial targets of an anonymous abuse?
2: I mean, this is a nice example of our our expectation is all these letters are written about women to their neighbours. It's because we ignore some of these cases of hate mail from the time because they were kind of brushed away a bit. But actually, if you look at some of the footballers' responses, they're moving teams because of these letters. They they are getting upset by them. Jack Dodds, who formerly played for Sheffield United, moved in 1939 after letters were sent and, and he transferred to Blackpool. Now, I think it is that people just get a little bit too invested in this sort of thing. It's very much like the below the line comments in your local paper never go there. I mean, it's sort of like a really nasty pit of people who, again, have so much time and are really invested in something very local. And it wasn't just the players, the football players who were targeted, but also the management And so it surprised me, actually, that some of the managers sort of resigned from their seats. So the vice chairman of Torquay United resigned in 1937. And that was after a year long campaign of disguised writing. Some were typed, some were written in block letters, some were written in pencil. So this is all to disguise who's writing. One letter was signed shareholder. So it implies that, you know, your local community is really invested in these things. And they asked, any wonder the team didn't win with you and them drinking. So there's sorts of like moral critiques there as well. I think, again, it's connected to, it's the sort of local and the media and the responses and people wanting to be part of a bigger story. You know how whenever you watch football being played, you think, oh, I would have managed that differently. And, you know, the the blokey talk in the pub, it's that coming through. You know, why did you do it like that? You know, this is really super important to me. And again, in moments of anxiety, things like your local football team becomes more important to you. So you invest more in it.
1: So with all that in mind, I mean, As you said, we live in an age of internet trolling, of online abuse, where if you raise your head above the parapet and venture an opinion on social media, you can prepare yourself for a torrent of abuse. Can the cases you've investigated for your book, can they, do you think, teach us anything about how we process and deal with anonymous abuse today?
2: Yeah I think they tell us various things so one would be that sometimes people don't really know the response that they're triggering in a receiver so I write about a case of the a local newspaper who invited their worst below the line troller to have a tour of the newspaper and when he arrived it was like oh he's really quite nice he doesn't know what he's doing. It's a sort of disinhibition that anonymity creates that people don't They stop, you know, like when you're in a car as well, you sort of don't see yourself as part of the community. You get very privatised. And so I think if we turn what we know about people writing poison pen letters into how we respond to modern day trolling and hate online, we can take two things from it. One would be that people generally don't follow through on threats. And so if somebody's making a threat, we could see it more as a cry for help. For them and their position rather than something that anybody's going to seriously follow through there are lots of threats mentioned in lots of the letters I looked at and in very few cases is anything actually done about them now the other thing I'd say is well okay if you're on the receiving end of that it's all very well to say mostly people don't follow through with that but you will emotionally respond to it in some way and so in the past the response was destroy the letter get rid of it you don't want that bad negative energy around you And I'd say with online, a response would be if you're feeling you can take it, peep into it a little bit. But if you're already feeling anxious and that your response might not be proportionate, then just ignore it. Just sort of close it down. Don't look at it. So people lock down Twitter, their Twitter accounts or X accounts every so often because they don't want to have that in their lives I think if you engage with it, you know, don't feed the trolls. That's what they always say. Don't, don't feed it. If you engage with it, then it's probably going to affect you more. So, again, go back to this idea of the clergyman in the late 18th century. You know, make poetry of it. Do something else with it. But don't dwell on it too much. Because it's probably not as much about you as you think it is. It's more about the writer. Perhaps it's, it's something that, that we need to think about in terms of making a more just society and making people not feel as though they have to do things like that to get attention, to get noticed, and not putting people in positions of anxiety so they feel they need to kick out like that. So again, go back to this idea. It's society that will breed this. So if we make the society better and make people happier, there'll be less of it.
0: That was Emily Cocaine. You can read her feature on Poison Pen Letters in the October issue of BBC History magazine. Penning Poison is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.